Evergreen Exchange. So welcome back to the Evergreen Exchange. Normally, uh, we talk about finance and economics. Today's topic is a little different, but um, I think it's going to be top of mind to a lot of the listeners. Uh, Over the last few years, there's two areas that I get asked most about by investors or potential investors. One is cryptocurrency. The latter is cannabis. And I'd like to go, I'd like, before we go any further, I'd like to say that today's episode isn't meant to persuade or dissuade any investors from investing in the cannabis space. Instead, it's an attempt to answer a lot of the questions that I've been fielding for the past few years and also to expand our listeners' um, insights into the space. Today's guest is Josh Rosen, not the quarterback of the Miami Dolphins for football enthusiasts. Josh is the CEO of Forefront Ventures, a multi-state operator in the cannabis industry. He has a background in finance and was a portfolio manager in Credit Suisse, at Credit Suisse, as well as an equity analyst. Forefront has a variety of business interests within the industry, which we'll cover throughout this interview. Maybe, Josh, at this time, you could give listeners a brief dis- description of Forefront, what you guys do, and then we could maybe talk about the industry as a whole. Yeah, certainly. So, so Forefront Ventures is what's commonly referred to in our industry today as a multi-state operator or as the, uh, the jargon in our industry is MSO. Um, one of the reasons for that jargon is, you know, the federal legal system is obviously not, you well, know, it, it is defined as federally illegal today. Uh, and so it's the state regulatory systems that define how one operates in the U.S. Uh, and so having a presence that is in multiple states uh, ends up being one of the defining characteristics of some of the players in the space, particularly the larger companies in the space. And so Forefront uh, while our heritage goes back to being a regulatory consulting firm in the formative stages of the industry, which we can get into, uh, today we are an operator of a vertically integrated business uh, that goes from cultivation all the way through uh, retail and you know, direct to the, to the customer uh, and or patient in the medical markets. And so that presence is... Uh, combination, the state of Washington is, is the most mature market that we're in uh, relative to where legalization has been in place, place for quite some time. Uh, and then we are in a, in a number of emerging states where uh, either the medical rules are, are relatively new and, and uh, effectively in their formative stages and or they're going through a conversion uh, or adoption of a recreational program. And that's Illinois, Massachusetts. Uh, and then on the medical only side, uh, we've got Arizona, Maryland and Pennsylvania, uh, and I missed one on the on the on the in, in process of converting, which is Michigan, which is also past recreational. So we're in a number of states and have been in this industry since we formed Forefront back in early 2011. Josh, that's a great setup, and and leads me to my kind of the first maybe request from you, which is to go through the evolution of the industry. It's not very common in in business to have something go from basically illegal to now partially legal and probably someday fully legal. And talk through just what that experience has been like since you've been on the front lines. Yeah, I, I think it's it's fascinating. I remember talking to one of my economics professors in the you know, early stages of, of exploring and starting to spend time in the industry. Uh, and, and noting how different uh, it was relative to how, how, how most emerging industries work. Uh, one of the things that, that stands out immediately in this industry is, even though it's been illicit market-driven, uh, it's a pretty mature customer base in terms of product form factor, expectations, et cetera. 
uh, while there are a whole bunch of you know, new folks coming to the industry, uh, that that legacy illicit market is is a really strong underpinning to the entire industry. I mean, that's that's been people's access what, point. And so, what you're saying is there's a lot of people that were breaking the law. <laughs> that is a very a very good way of putting it. And when you look at it from an economic standpoint, you know, illicit markets they often lack some of the friction that that government regulatory bodies can put in place. So while there are a a bunch of problems that come with illicit markets, they're also in some ways often the purest form of capitalism. And that's fascinating. And so, and so, you know, you have like California, actually Washington's a good, a good example, but California, Washington, Oregon, uh, the places where you had a pretty vibrant cannabis community in the, in the, in the pre-legalization days, you know, you, you had, yeah, pretty a, a pretty advanced ecosystem of illicit market operators, and uh, and that's basically what we're you know the biggest tidal wave of of this industry and the the growth of this industry is that migration from illicit market to regulated market, mm-hmm. and that's where we you know that that's where we sit that intersection. But with that, and this is why that multi-state operator term is I think one of the reasons it's become so prevalent is every state ends up with its own regulatory overlay. And so we ultimately set up operations uh, in different regulatory environments. And I, I liken it to, you know, having to operate in Europe as opposed to the U.S., uh, where, you know, each each border creates a little bit different regulatory system, potentially a different tax regime, uh, and, and that bit. So the evolution of the industry has really followed the regulatory migration in the various states mixed with you know, commentary from the federal side. So in our early days, uh, we were really cautious about being associated with and or uh, involved with any larger cultivation facilities because from a criminal liability standpoint in federal law, there are some pretty strict limits on how much you can be in possession of or how much you know, if you have an intent to, sell, intent to sell or distribute, what that possession looks like. And so in the early days of the industry, back when we first formed Forefront, uh, we actually set up a consulting business in part because we didn't want to do what's frequently referred to in the industry as touch the plant. There was more criminal liability associated with t- touching the plant than consulting. But even consulting, mm-hmm. you'd argue, was still conspiracy to to be involved right. in the industry. And so, so you know, it, it's all you know gradations of illegal. But that regulatory lens is one that's really driven kind of each each evolution of the industry. And so, from an investing standpoint, what we've seen happen. And you, you can look at what stocks trade publicly, specifically on this topic, is because Canada legalized federally both medical first and then adult use or recreational, the capital market activity in Canada has been significantly greater. And we now have you know, NASDAQ and NYSE trade, traded companies that are in the industry, albeit they can't do what we at Forefront do uh, because the exchanges won't, won't have them if they are now I'm going to go to that quote, touch the plant, if they are touching the plant in the U.S. And so right. they are operators in Canada. Uh, they operate other places internationally that are federally legal. Uh, and But they also, what we don't get access to generally is institutional capital. Uh, sure. And so that ability for these Canadian firms to have access to institutional capital and for you know, the average retail investor to go into their you know, their Fidelity or their Schwab account and be able to buy a stock uh, with a ticker symbol weed, for instance, you know, that threshold has been, you know, that, that capability has really been driven by these Canadian players. And now my bias is going to come through, many of which aren't great, great operators. 
they've been yes. you know, interesting capital market stories. They've, attra- they've attracted capital well. They've told the story well, but they've really not executed well. And, and, and that execution is because, in part, they didn't, you know, the, the folks that, that at least could navigate from the illicit market into the regulated market that had a lot of history with the product and an appreciation for the fact that you already had a relatively sophisticated consumer. They just were buying it off on the street corner that you, you can't just immediately think that big ag or big pharma can replicate that, produce a product that people want. And the Canadians have really struggled to, to meet their production targets uh, and be efficient and, and really drive the execution side of their business model, despite being very successful publicly traded companies from an investment standpoint sure. for some time. Sure. I'll come back to that point um, in a second, but maybe just to summarize, you know, for listeners that might be confused, you know, Forefront is a U.S. company. However, it's traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange, correct? With with one correction. Uh, We're traded on the Canadian Securities Exchange, which is, we refer to as the CSE, which is a little bit of a sub-exchange. We are also traded on the, on the OTC markets. And so not, not NASDAQ listed from an exchange standpoint, but it, we do have an OTC ticker symbol as well. Uh, and we're a foreign filer. So we do, because of Canadian law, uh, it's been easier to become a publicly traded company in Canada. And so we file our financial statements on CDAR, which is similar to the SEC Edgar system here uh, in the U.S. Uh, but we do, we do have quite a bit of, of trading activity also on the OTC. It's just Many brokerage houses don't love OTC market stocks, uh, and and then yeah, the CSC is definitely a quote unquote lesser quality exchange than the Toronto Stock Exchange. The Toronto Stock Exchange gotcha. is much like the the NYSE. They won't they won't allow a company that touches you touches the plant in the U.S. to be listed. Got it. Um, who who are the consumers these days for cannabis? Is it still teenagers behind the the school gym? Is it baby boomers that are you know getting old and need ways to you know new ways to deal with aches and pains? How do you guys view the market? I mean the the simple answer is it's everyone. It, it that's probably been what's most surprising to me. I was not a cannabis consumer. In fact, I still still prefer bourbon to, to cannabis by quite a wide margin. Uh, unfortunately, I do. I am a firm believer in you know, the harms of alcohol are significantly greater than the harms of cannabis. I just choose that. I choose that sin uh, on a recreational <laughs> basis. But that said, the the consumer of cannabis, if you were to just look at the, the raw demographics, particularly in the states where you've seen the migration to, in Washington, a good example, where you've seen the migration to the regulated market in, in large, you know, there's still a, a vibrant illicit market in Washington. The tax structure is kind of implicitly make sure of that. But the but that migration to the regulated market, it is not so much the teenagers behind the school, but it is definitely skews to the you know, the younger male audience is still the heaviest consumer of cannabis. But I think as the wellness elements of cannabis finally start coming into the light, which we're seeing now, and I think a lot of people see this just through CBD, which we can spend a minute or two on later. Uh, but even THC has a lot of therapeutic benefits attached to it that are becoming much clearer. Those therapeutic benefits of cannabis, the, the multiple cannabinoids of so THC and CBD being some two, two cannabinoids, but there are many others. Uh, and, and the terpenes, you know, what goes into the entire flower, for instance, and the wellness attributes of that, I think is bringing a whole new audience into cannabis. Uh, many of them not wanting, you know, any element of the the quote unquote high that goes along with with marijuana, right? And and, uh, and that so that thread is now very baby boomer driven. Yeah, my mother's a good example. 
of someone who, relative to navigating sleep, has had some success with, with cannabis. And so, you know, we, we are seeing a greater migration from a consumer standpoint. Um, I, think it's a, I think that's such a good point. I mean, you, everyone thinks about the cannabis industry as, oh, people are using it to, you know, recreationally smoke weed, right? And yet I think about, you know, I've watched my parents buy CBD oil for their dog who is sick. I've watched guys that I play basketball with rubbing on the backs of their knee. And so I think the market is probably even bigger than people probably anticipate. I think that's probably what's most interesting to me. So the mission side of Forefront, and we, we have pretty strong advocacy roots, and I am, I am a firm believer that you know, the prohibition is in, in this industry particularly, but, but in many places is kind of a massive, a, a massive problem relative to the actual outcomes, uh, despite what often are good intentions. And, and marijuana is a, a prime example of that. And so just providing legal access uh, and getting and getting this product off the illicit market provides plenty of motivation for our team to just drive forward. But coming into this, I had no idea the depth of the therapeutic benefits, and hmm. and that's just to me added to the injustice of prohibition and the and the, and the scheduling of of this drug because it's prevented so much research, and it's so frustrating when you know, going back to my mother, it's so frustrating to not have a great answer to. You know what is the best product mix or what's the best form factor to handle sleep and we're still sure. dealing with anecdotes yeah you know, the anecdotes are getting mm -hmm. better and right and the, the, the knowledge base is getting better but it's still it you know relative to where science would normally be you know with, with something like this it's, it's crazy and i think that the the anecdote that i'd leave at this point with is one that i always found you know in the, in the early days of my education in this industry is you know if if Research, or if a, uh, if like expeditionists deep in the Amazon stumbled across this plant today, and and it was a brand new discovery, it would be amazing all of the things that would come out of it, mm -hmm. and and how how it would be handled and embraced and dealt with. But instead, we've got this you know, demonized stigma. And I grew up with Nancy Reagan telling me not to do drugs, uh, sure. and. And you know, that, that stigma is still really strong. It's probably a, a, you know, maybe part of the core reason I prefer bourbon still in a subconscious way. <laughs> yep, 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 for sure. That's, that's an interesting way to think about it. You know, I think that um, I don't know if you could say most people, but I think a lot of people are certainly aware of um, the emerging, you know, potential therapeutical, therapeutic benefits of, um, of cannabis. But one thing that hasn't been getting the same positive press is vaping. And maybe you could talk a little bit about what you see, you know, I mean, I think certainly talk about, you know, how it's impacting your industry, your opinion on it, maybe the, you know, it's used by kids. Just, I mean, that, that is one thing that I, 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 I think is, is having a negative effect on, on um, cannabis stocks broadly, whether right or wrong. Yeah, I agree uh, with, with the, the effect and frankly, the potential impact on how politicians view, view cannabis. There, there are a couple of threads here, and, and they're, they're just, just so we're clear, the complexity around vaping from a science standpoint is very high. And so the idea, and if you go back to, and I'm going to, to hit the nicotine side for a minute, the tobacco side, sure. if you look at Juul, but going way back before Juul, vaping has now been around for nicotine for a long time. And the regulatory standards that the FDA has in place that match the heating element to the tobacco and what's a cutting agent. So the cutting agent usually used, frequently used, at least in tobacco or nicotine products, are PG or VG, propylene, gly propylene glycol or something along those lines. 
Uh, and that's the, that's the cutter that gives it the right viscosity so that the oil in the cartridge hits the heating element and vaporizes. Mm-hmm. And what's important to remember is it's a very different process and it effectively creates like an aerosol. It's a very mm-hmm. different process than, than boiling. And the, the science here, and I'm going out over my skis, but the science is maps that heating element to the ingredients so that you never take the temperature too high because you get bad outcomes. Uh, and you use, and you use cutting agents and those cutting agents now for tobacco have been used for a long time. And so what we're seeing right now in the mar- in the, in the media is something that's much more acute. These aren't, you know, these aren't people that have been vaping for 20 years developing cancer, uh, you know, right. lung cancer type stuff. This is a much more acute, they're effectively, and I think some of the research that just came out within the last day or two is, is some of the autopsies now that we're seeing are this is much more like a chemical burn in the lungs than, than even, you know, fatty oil building up in the lungs, for instance. And so what I feel pretty strongly about at this point, and this is where we're going to come back, is this is predominantly, if not completely, a, an issue that is because of prohibition, not that should lead to more prohibition right. uh, in, terms right. of, in terms of the vaping illnesses. There's a separate topic that, that merits a lot more attention, which ties back to Juul. But as it relates to the current media storm around the, the, the lung health, um, you know, what we're seeing is a pre- preponderance of illicit product that doesn't have the regulated environment attached to it. Right. These, aren't, these aren't groups with liability insurance even. They're not having to be thoughtful about that quality assurance in the same way, uh, that's where we're seeing these issues show up almost exclusively. I mean, there's some talk about where else they might be, uh, but, it, but it all stems from the fact that we don't have a regulated system. And so, right. and then seeing politicians come out and say, we should ban vape. It's like, so you should send more people to the illicit market? Uh, right, nicotine. right. Nicotine, nicotine's highly addictive uh, on a relative basis. And so it's not like you ban vaping and people just, are they going back to cigarettes or, yeah, anyhow. On the no, yeah, that's, side, it's fascinating. Yeah, go ahead. Talk yeah, about the. I just the, the jewel side real quick is interesting because there we are dealing with a different issue, which is youth use and appeal. Right. And and there, I similar. I just think we we need to be. I'm never I'm never a huge proponent of prohibition because it, yeah, when when a product is, is desired, even if it's got an you know, if it's got an edge attached to it, uh, people find yeah. their way to it, and and regulated product tends to be with products like this tend to be much safer. I think one of mm-hmm. the bigger issues that the vaping companies have had with kids is, is the dosing aspect of it and the amount of nicotine present. And, you know, so people want to move away from the flavors and, and, and that part and, and make it less appealing to kids. But I, I think the appeal to kids is still broadly much like the appeal to cigarettes when I was a kid. It's a little edgy. <laughs> Uh, right. it, it's cool. You know, there's a cool element that comes into play, like whether it's strawberry, fla- you know, the, the fruit punch flavored or Captain Crunch sure. flavored is less important than just the appeal of doing something different and, and what the other cool kids are doing. I just don't think you lose that. So I think you know, tying it back to how you titrate and dose becomes more important because from what I've heard, and this is me just speaking like a regular consumer now, I'm not an expert on any of the jewel oriented stuff is the amount of nicotine consumed through Juul versus you know, just smoking a cigarette is, is pretty massive. Mm-hmm. And I mean, from an investor's standpoint, you know, if you're going to look at the world and say, you know, 
I'm really worried that the cannabis industry is going to be negatively impacted by regulation on vaping. I mean, I would feel comforted knowing, well, then that means that you're also going to punish big tobacco, and we all know how hard that could be. Oh, I, I agree. It's, I, so, and, and, I, so, and I don't think you can see, I think, I, I think you're going to pretty quickly see the, 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 you know, the knee-jerk reaction has been, and Governor Baker in Massachusetts was, I think, the first to kind of push aggressively on it, was to, like, we're going to ban vapes for four months. And it was tobacco and cannabis in a mm-hmm. state with, with, with regulated cannabis. And he's already being sued by the vape shops. And I think we're going to see that stuff play out really quickly now because there's a lot of harm created when you kind of go to instant prohibition. Uh, and much like you said, and you're starting to hit the tobacco side of the equation, which is a very big side. And I think the science is pretty settled that outside of this issue, which seems fairly unregulated, uh, vaping is preferable to smoking a cigarette. And yeah, I think I tied the bow on the vaping thing by disagreeing with you and by, by agreeing with you and saying that, you know, the solution isn't to try to ban the stuff because then you're going to have, you know, more and more things popping up, you know, that are not regulated. It, it's to obviously move forward with a federally regulated system, which we don't know. I mean, how long is that away? That's a great question. How long do you guys see until we see um, cannabis federally legal? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Uh, let me let me check my crystal ball on my desk over here. <laughs> All right. So what I would say, so right now we're actually, the, 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 the policy that's, in, that's, that's front and center in our industry is called the SAFE Act. And that just is a safe harbor for commercial banks to work in the industry. So this bank, this industry, because it's federally legal, has a lot of friction in, in some unusual places, banking being one of them. So we, for instance, we operate in a number of states. We have local banking relationships in each one of those states as soon as we get involved with going back to the old, the, the language touching the plant. And so the SAFE Act, if passed, and the House passed it with a, by a wide margin, uh, the SAFE Act, if, if passed, gives the national banks as well, like the bigger banks, some safe harbor language to provide banking services to the industry, mm-hmm. including some commercial, commercial lending. But it's not, hmm. it, does not give, it does not give safe harbor for the investing side of the equation. So I don't think it changes the, like, this isn't a bill that fixes the U.S. capital markets. You know, we're not right. banked by, by my old firm, Credit Suisse, for instance. They will bank one of the Canadian licensed producers, but not the U.S. side. Uh, and so playing that forward, if McConnell will put it out there, and the, and the head of the banking committee on the, uh, in the Senate has said he would like to put it forward, uh, if it does see the floor, we think it passes. It's just a, it's a pretty big question first whether it will see the floor. And mm. we, I, w- I would just put that as 50-50. Going to your real question, when do we get federal legalization? Behind the SAFE Act, there's a, there's a bill called the States Act, which is effectively just the feds admitting that they're taking their hands off. And as long as you are in a state legal program, the states get to make that determination. And it is no longer considered a, schedule, a Schedule One drug in that state. That States Act, not likely to see the floor uh, anytime soon. Actually, same thing. It could it would pass in the House. Decent chance it would actually pass in the Senate these days. Less likely, but decent chance it just won't see the floor. All that said, my personal view is that post conventions next next 2020 uh, next year so end of june i think are when the political conventions are in the presidential cycle when the democrat candidate is now official uh this issue is going to become topical if it's mm-hmm. biden it might be a little bit different if it's anybody else uh, because he's much more moderate on this topic than the rest of the democrats are who are all kind of lined up very pro-legalization i think because this is actually an issue that has bipartisan support and is a populist issue, 
there is a reasonable chance that Trump, in from a political strategy standpoint, tries to take the thunder away from the Democrats and does something you know, at the executive on the executive branch side to enable this to move faster. And and, and because yeah, I, I agree yeah, with and, you. Yeah. And so I don't know how to handicap that, but we think that is a realistic possibility come you know, late summer, early fall. And we think that is probably maybe the most meaningful catalyst relative to capital flows in the space uh, where institutional capital can start to participate and where U.S. strategics, Altria being an example of a company that's made an investment in one of the Canadian companies but hasn't been able to invest in the U.S., sure. the big U.S. strategics can also play in the U.S. as these laws start to gain some momentum. So that's a, another perfect segue. So there's, I view it as there's two monumental things that change in the U.S. cannabis industry when you get federal legalization. I mean, maybe three. Regulations, one. Two is a tax change that you should talk about with investors. And then three is the entrance of, you know, what is it? Does, it, does this eventually become an industry that's owned by, Altria, Constellation Brands, all the big tobacco and alcohol companies, or do you see, you know, companies that are new to, you know, cannabis becoming self-sustaining and, and powerhouse players? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. You know, on the, and I, I think the unpacking the, the regulatory side of that, it will be very interesting to see what federal regulations actually look like. You know, right now we're all state to state regulatory. We don't have the FDA that check and checks our labeling and packaging, for instance. And so that, that overlay is one that, you know, we're going to have to, yeah, it's one of the negatives that will that'll come with legalization for the players in the space today is what, how do the feds decide to regulate this? And that actually dovetails into taxation. You know, today there's a provision in the tax code called 280E uh, that, that really deals with, uh, for lack of a better term, drug trafficking, uh, illegal drug trafficking. And so, the way taxes work for cannabis dispensaries in the U.S., particularly on the retail side, is it's really a, an unfavorable tax environment. As soon as you fix legalization, uh, 280E goes away for our businesses because it specifically is a provision about doing things illegally. And so you guys don't get a write-off. As, is it SG&A? You guys don't get a write-off. That's correct. Right. It's, uh, that's all a over big overhead expense. costs. Right. It's a pretty big expense. Yes, it, it's it's so it's instant yeah. profitability booster for any any uh, you know any business that's already you know that's currently functioning. Correct. It, it, it should be a, it should be very helpful. Uh, it also now we do think that there's probably some federal excise tax that comes into play at some point, uh, much like we see in alcohol and tobacco. But 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 yeah. the frankly the complexity around 280E, we would take the trade out for an excise tax instantly. Uh, and mm -hmm. so that tax change is real. Uh, and then that consumer question you ask, I, I don't have a great answer for other than I think all of the above. So, you know, when you look at the largest players in alcohol and in tobacco, you know, there's, there, there's several hundred billion dollars of market cap just amongst like the top five of each of those categories. And they don't, you know, tobacco and alcohol for a variety of reasons don't, don't interplay that much uh, in terms of their, the companies. In our industry, sure. I think we're going to see a, we're going to see a mix, in part because of the form factor flexibility. I mean, cannabis mm -hmm. has a mm -hmm. very significant form factor. You know, shows up in edibles, uh, obviously shows up in in, in oil and vaping, uh, and then is <laughs> very smokable. Uh, and so the the flexibility attached to it. So the better operators that are profitable or have access to capital markets themselves and like their own growth prospects, you know, there's a chance they may choose to stay alone. 
and simply perform and create, you know, the next brand, the next, the next successful, you know, consumer company uh, at scale. And at the same time, there's going to be a pretty massive incentive depending on price points for probably big alcohol first. If you were going to order this, uh, I think big alcohol probably has, in, in some ways, the most to lose relative to the emergence of cannabis, big tobacco being behind that. And actually, I don't think you'll see this happen from a transactional standpoint, but I think, I think pharma has, has mm-hmm. a, a very interesting position in all this because, because of the, as, as more and more comes out about the therapeutic benefits of cannabis, where cannabis can replace. We've definitely seen sure. enough anecdotes and some research out there that, that opiate use goes down in legal states. Right. Uh, right. Wow. And so it's a, it, you know, the replacement element of it is a, is kind of a wild card. So that's interesting. When you think about cannabis as a whole, you include the medical side. Um, it, it's obviously, like you said, it, it, it is possible that, you know, companies from different areas that we might not expect would emerge to be big players. Um, one of the questions that I, I kind of I have some you know people that I know in the industry I've done some due diligence over the years um, for clients I I've debated this and be interested to get your point Do you equate it to you know if you think about wine with wine you have you know massively different price points You have boxed wine then you have people that are collecting wine that's you know hundreds if not thousands of dollars and it's very unique and it's very cultish It's very brands you know brands are very uh, fragmented. And then you, you know, maybe the other side of the scale is like cigarettes, like cigarettes kind of taste the same. And there's like five brands and you smoke one of the five, where do you, and maybe beer somewhere in between, you know, in terms of like a market, um, market makeup, how do you, how do you see mar- you know, marijuana and cannabis? And, and I, 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 I know you're going to probably talk about form factor, but how do you see it eventually shaping out? It's a great question. I mean, I, I definitely have a strong, an opinion, a strong, strong is the wrong word. It's a strong opinion, but it's not recognizing how hard this is to know in terms of how it shakes out. But I think there are a couple of things to remember relative to how brands emerge today versus 50 years ago uh, to go back. And I think tobacco and beer, the emergence of Budweiser Miller as an example, I think outside of the Super Bowl today, where else do you get an audience that's watching TV at its scheduled time and watches the commercials? And, and right. I think w- what I'm getting at is advertising now is so much more targeted and so much less, it's still national in scope, but it's so much less national and has so much less national reach in the natural sense. And, and that allows for brands to get built in a much different way than might've been the case 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. If I'm going back too far, but and so I think when we think of the emergence of Budweiser and Miller and then compare it to cannabis, we have to understand that targeted advertising is so much cheaper today and so much easier and so much, so much yeah, just better to execute with social media and other access points and the fact that TV, most people watch without commercials these days. And so there are a lot of people watch without commercials these days, at least that, that element uh, I think is one dynamic that's very different today. And the other is, Customized manufacturing is also significantly more efficient today. So, and this you see in the beer industry. And so beer is my favorite analogy for cannabis only in that I think the regionalization we're now seeing from a branding standpoint where a Mm co-packing facility can change out the labels, no problem because the printer that they're using has the flexibility to do it. So you don't need to have Miller on everything. 
you can have 26 different brands have a very similar product coming off the shelves, but have it be very regionally specific. And so I think that, that element of the beer industry where you go into the, the general grocery store these days, and it's like a rainbow of colors that faces you uh, mm-hmm. is probably most analogous mixed with, with this piece relative to beer. And this is where I think the differences are, are stark to wine, uh, tobacco, maybe more so, but to wine other than the, like the consummate, very, very niche connoisseur. We think the price points aren't, aren't like multiples higher for better product versus lower tier product. And in beer, you get, you'll often get a, you know, a 30, a, you know, somewhere between a 20 and a 50 or 60% premium. Sure. In wine, and then wine, you could have 600, yeah, 6,000. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You get the yeah, massive. That, I agree with that. Yeah, that's and so I just, and so, yeah, there are some, some very, very niche specialty beers where you get some massive premiums, but that's just like there are going to be some certain growers that have a connoisseur product and there's only so much of it because it's scarce that, right. you know, you get that 500, 600, 800% markup. Uh, but it's going to be few and far between that by and large, you're going to move to more of that beer type multiplier, which is why for, to give a little tiny forefront commercial, one of the reasons we're in Washington is because we merged with a company that we view as best in class from an efficient production standpoint. And we think the ability to be a low cost quality producer is more important than building a brand today. We think the brands get built on being a low cost quality producer, but that until prices compress and supply demand, you know, kind of normalizes that the first thing you have to be really good at is, is producing and that brand loyalty is actually pretty limited until prices compress. And then you could start building a brand on top of that because much like any other industry, people go back to you know, at least the perception of quality and the consistency and all of the brand attributes that start, you know, the aspirational brand attributes that start to play. But for us, we focus a lot on that, on being a low cost quality producer. I apologize for taking so long to get to this topic, which is, is something that the industry is, I mean, anyone that follows this is probably yelling for me to be asking about, which is pricing. It seems like there's no floor in, in pricing. And it, what's the only thing that's a little bit surprising to me, and I'm sure you have a great answer for this, is, you know, it seems like these, these you know, when, when all these licenses first came out, every, there was this gold rush, all these companies like, hey, we're going to grow marijuana. And then they all realized for one reason or another, it was harder than they thought. The businesses didn't pencil. They weren't as good at it. You know, you had suits rushing into, you know, who didn't know anything about growing. And then you had growers who knew nothing about business and this giant train wreck, right? And so you'd think that that would eventually lead to businesses shutting down and supply constricting and prices stabilizing. But it seems like we're not in that scenario. We're in sort of a still in a downward spiral. Says somebody in the state of Washington, right? <laughs> I say that because that is exactly the experience that Washington went through. It's not terribly different than the experience Colorado has gone through. Uh, Oregon's in a similar place. What I would say is that's a very, very different environment than you know, Massachusetts for us, for instance. And so hmm. pricing ends up, to, ends up being this question of what your regulatory environment looks like and what gets supported. Uh, but let's use Washington and then migrate. Washington, what you sure. just described is accurate. Prices compressed. A lot of the original, so if you look at the transition from medical to recreational in the state of Washington, a lot of the original medical players that, that frankly probably grew higher quality product in smaller, at smaller scale than some of the, the larger players that are there today, but they couldn't compete as prices compressed. And that, that price compression happened and there was an oversupply in part because it was an administrative process to get licensed. It was very easy. You know, capitalism was, was really, really quick in Washington. 
Uh, it kicked in limited regulatory barriers, pretty high tax environment, but limited regulatory barriers. And you had a whole bunch of people chase that gold rush. And what we're seeing today and, you know, our chief operating officer, Leo, who grew up in Bellevue, you know, Leo would tell you he's, he's been able to get price back for the first time in a few years and that the shakeout finally seems to have, have settled. Uh, and so prices mm-hmm. haven't come down for a, for a little bit now. And we're beginning to see the ability to take a little bit of price again because they got, it did, it got oversupplied. And it's sure. not terribly different than a, than a typical commodity cycle, particularly, you know, commodities where it takes a while to get your operation up and there's a, there's a decent amount of capital to build, to build your, your supply chain. Uh, and then, you know, by the, unfortunately for many, by the time they get that supply chain up and running and productive, the market price structure has changed mightily on them and you get over capacity. Uh-huh. And that, that, that's largely what happened. I think what we're seeing in a lot of Eastern states, and now I'm going to go to Massachusetts as an example, sure. where it's really, really supply constrained relative to the amount of both retail outlets, as well as the amount of actual products on the shelves is similarly, it, it actually takes people a, a while to get their operations dialed in. Growing product is harder than one would think. Uh, and having it, having it, Having that performance has been a challenge, which limits the supply. But product that that we sell in Washington for seven hundred dollars a pound wholesale, a little bit more than that, but right in that ballpark, right now in the state of Massachusetts would sell for probably a minimum of thirty five hundred dollars a pound. If you were selling a lot of wow. it, there's, there's not a lot. To, there's not a lot to buy, but it's four thousand dollars a pound wholesale, and wow. so. That supply-demand imbalance won't stay there forever, but in a lot of states, it stays for a while. And so, even to give that perspective, Washington or Washington and Oregon have probably got hit the hardest this way. Uh, it's frankly one of the reasons we love we love Leo and we loved our, our merger was because when you've had to live that, you know, necessity is the mother of all invention. Like mm. they had to get efficient to survive, they had to get efficient. When you're in Massachusetts and you want to solve to get more product out the door, you just throw more labor at everything. Sure. Because it, because it pencils out when you're, when you're getting to sell product at that price. But as you, as you come down that, that learning curve, or as you part that price curve, excuse me, you've got to get more and more efficient. So we feel like we've got kind of the beachhead flagship operation relative to how you efficiently produce, you know, both, you know, vape pen, vape, pen, vape, vape cartridges, pre-rolls, and edibles uh, in, in it's that Washington base. But even California for... The, the quality criteria in California leaves more room in pricing. Washington and Oregon are really, really challenging markets because of that price compression. You're, are you, you're saying that the, the regulation in Washington is so low that there's just so much um, cannabis that you're, you're able to sell more? Yeah, well, there's, there's, you're able to grow more. There's more, there's more, there's more, yeah. And, and there's you. a decent amount Got of outdoor, there's a, there's a decent amount of outdoor product. I mean, one of the other really big differences here is that Pacific Northwest, including yeah, Humboldt and North and from Northern California up that yeah, from an illicit market standpoint, it was a massive, it still is a massive export crop, not for the regulated market that's staying in state, but for the export market that's coming out of state. And so that's exactly there was what a, I was going to say. Yeah. There was a lot of capacity already there that just right. migrated onto the re- regulated market. When we're setting up shop in Massachusetts, we're going and building that capacity. There's, there's not a, a big, and there's a little bit of cult of illicit market grow, uh, that's done up in Maine uh, at uh-huh. scale, but I mean, there's there's just not a big illicit cultivation market that exists very much east, and so you're building all this infrastructure brand new because you can't ship product across state lines. 
Got it. So we, so you're in multiple states. There's different pricing structures. There's different regulations. Um, that's probably a challenge of being a multi-state operator, but it probably creates a nice barrier to entry for you guys, um, being able to have that, that intellectual knowledge and property that allows you to operate in multiple states. I guess one of the questions that I'd have is, you know, what, talk a little bit about you know, we hear people say all the time, I mean, and this is sort of the whole reason for this podcast was, hey, man, you know, I want to invest in pot. What do, you, what do you think about that? And it's like, well, you know, there's not a lot of really safe ways to do it. And we, we've heard a horror story up here. Guy, you know, he's a financial advisor and he gave somebody a million bucks and um, the guy was going to start a cannabis company and he never saw him again. And so there's the private market, which is, you know, there's risk there, and then there's the public markets. You know, what, what, where do you see there to be the most value for for people who want to participate in cannabis? It's a, it's a great question, man. I, I think, unfortunately, I mean, much like many hype-driven cycles, I mean, the public markets, you know, provide access to liquidity and have some of the common benefits attached. But actually, discerning, yeah, we we internally refer to it as discerning signal from noise, but you know, kind of separating out quality from from hype is very challenging. And the Canadian LPs are probably the prime example. I mean, we don't find a lot of execution when we look at what they've actually accomplished relative to the amount of capital they've raised, but relative to stock market performance, they've been great speculative investments. Yeah, the last six months notwithstanding, they've been terrible. But prior to that, right. they were great. And that, that element of kind of racing to get into a cannabis stock because it's exciting and it's a growth engine, uh, I think that part of the cycle has largely been played out. I think someone yep. told me the other day there are now, now more than 200 publicly traded cannabis companies. And so the, the next iteration of, and we refer to it as the, you know, the evolution of the, of the capital, cannabis capital markets, the next iteration is really finding those companies that doing a, doing a cleaner job of handicapping who's going to be a winner versus not. So in the past, it was, we're in cannabis. We tell a good story. People would throw money at you for a little while. Uh, and now it's, okay, well, how are you different than that company? And are you truly, is the management team aligned with me? And you know, are you, are you building a business for the long haul? Or what are you trying to accomplish? And, and how are you executing against that? And the next two, three years, I think are going to be dictated by that, by both financial performance. Now that financial performance is much of a precursor because it's still an industry driven by the blue sky of you know, the $50, $100 billion marketplace that this should turn into in the U.S., much larger when you look you know, outside the borders. And so you know, financial performance is one indication of that success. I think scalable capabilities is another. And so for us, you know, we really look at making sure we've got you know, an appropriately aligned management team that's executing against some pretty, some pretty basic blocking and tackling operating metrics, but you know, that we can achieve what's in front of us. And we don't really need the public markets to do it. You know, we need to, we're, we're a business. If we, if we look at what our aspirations are, yes, we are going to need access to capital on a go forward basis because there's so much potential growth in front of us and we feel really well positioned for it. But that, that, you know, whether we're public or private, you know, shouldn't dictate, you know, how we're executing on our business plan and, and what success we're driving toward. I mean, that, I mean, you know, to, to give you guys a little bit of a, a tout here, you know, you look at the your guys' financials and, and what you guys are doing relative to and your valuation relative to some of these other companies. And it's just it's a joke. You know, why, why do you think that persists still? 
Well, I mean, I was particularly picking. It, yeah. You could pick on Tilray. You could pick on whatever you want. Yeah, I think for there are probably two primary reasons. I mean, one I think is just a the, the market reality of people wanting to own cannabis stocks and knowing and and the easiest place to do that is a Nasdaq stock or a New York Stock Exchange stock. And so those that have navigated that, by and large, is unilaterally true. But by and large, those have navig those that can navigate that. We can't. I'd love to navigate that. We can't navigate that access point with touching the plant. But those that have done that, Tilray being a prime example, have benefited to a degree that's a little, you can kind of make you scratch your head, uh, but they've benefited. The other, I think, just relates to those, you know, we're still, we're seeing the tail end of it. Uh, Bruce Linton, who was the CEO of Canopy Growth, which is the largest of the, of the publicly traded cannabis companies, he was let go. You know, Constellation sure. Brands made a really strategic yeah. investment into, into Canopy, and then he was let go not long ago. But he really represents, to me, the last iteration of cannabis companies, which was very, let me paint the big picture for you. Let me tell you why this industry is going to be so big. We're doing, you know, we're just spreading our, our kind of, we're kind of spreading our, our capital everywhere, making, making targeted bets. But I'd argue without much, without a tremendously strong strategic lens, without a lot of operating capabilities attached to it, just with access to capital. And right. now I think we're over the next couple of years, we're going to see just how poor some of that capital allocation actually was hmm. when it's hmm. not, when it's not, dis when it's not being done discriminately, but that, but Tilray, Canopy, Aurora, uh, you know, they've had access to capital uh, and it, and cheap capital can be, it, yeah, <laughs> I was about to make a drug analogy. Cheap, cheap capital brings up, <laughs> it's pretty addictive. Uh, right. And so, you know, you, you might not, when, when capital's cheap, you don't, you don't take care of it quite as closely uh, frequently. And so I think we're going to see that migration now to the companies that, that have a little bit more discipline and articulate, better articulate the actual returns on capital as opposed to just being excited about the growth of cannabis. And for investors, I think, I mean, I think it's challenging. I think you know, there, are, there are so many different companies to work through. I really think when we look at our own investor relations strategy, it's less about putting out press releases and getting people excited. And it's much more about who are the, where, where can we interact one-on-one -on -one with people and help them understand uh, and get aligned with our vision. And if they buy the stock because they're aligned with our vision, great. If they don't mm -hmm. agree with our vision, they're probably not going to buy the stock. But if they buy the stock just because we tell a great cannabis story, uh, they might not be with us for that long. I, I want, mm -hmm. you know, we're looking for folks that really see what we're trying to build and get behind it. You were a PM in in your previous days. If you were going to tell somebody how to go out and start to evaluate the 200 plus, you know, cannabis publicly traded securities, how what you know what what things would you look for if you couldn't buy forefront? God forbid. Yes, yes. Uh, a, a couple of things. I mean, one, I, I would probably want to at least spend. Yeah, I, I, I was a philosophy major in college, so I get to start at 10,000 feet all the time. Okay. Like my, our team here knows this for, knows, at Forefront knows I like to sort of 10,000 feet and then go down. And sometimes I go down real fast. But at 10,000 feet, I think you have to understand the regulatory environment. And just to have a lens on, on what you're investing in and where and, and how they participate in that regulatory environment. So to me, let's just assume that we've got, you know, we've done some work. We understand, for instance, you know, this company that is generating a meaningful amount of, of profits is in Florida and that's their dominant presence. And here's here's I need to have an opinion on Florida if I'm gonna if, if, if I'm gonna invest in this company because it's that's really the driver and I'm using you know, a specific example in this case, but that element of knowing kind of where you fit from a regulatory standpoint and the opportunities that are in front of that company I think is very important, 
And then second, and I weigh this more than most, but it goes back to my investing days. What is my alignment with the management team and, and the executive team that, that's there? You know, both how do they communicate, not just how much of the stock do they own, but also, you know, do they have, how much skin do they have in the game? You know, questions that really point at you know, the overall alignment um, and, and getting comfortable with that piece. Uh, you know, how are they going to be as stewards of, of, of by investment? And then the third piece, which is fairly standard, but it's you know, financial performance. And it doesn't necessarily have to be financial performance in aggregate, but financial performance in the, in the, place, you know, in the places that matter or you know, where you can get comfortable that, that they are they're going to sustain. Like there's a, there's a core execution capability that they possess that will scale, that will help them grow. Because ultimately, I think in early stage growth industries, you're trying to handicap, you know, as long as I, as long as my, my lens, as long as we're one of the top 10 companies, I think our investors are going to be really happy. Now, am I, am I playing? Am I running a company where I, where I'm trying to be, you know, number one and hopefully in the top three, of course, but this industry is abundant. It's not scarce. Uh, right. We will do very well. We will do very well for investors showing up in the top 10 five years from now. Uh, right. And so, you know, that quality screen, I think, is enough to at least get you down to okay. Here are a core few. Here are a core handful of names that I can own and sleep at night because I know the management team is doing their best for me. I might not get every one of these bets right, but you know it's, it's a committed group. And and then I think the last actually I'm forgetting one thing today, uh, which is access to capital. Uh, I think right. Until, right until U.S. institutions are playing, I think you know management teams that either have a skill set and or uh, you know kind of already have the balance sheet. I think are are going to be you know rewarded over the next couple of years no that makes makes 100 percent sense go ahead maybe we'll I'll give you a, a way to wrap up this you know i'll put your um philosophy major background if an investor sitting here going you know i've kind of been thinking about getting into cannabis paint me a picture for why you would want to give me give me a break best case scenario um, and then give me a break's worst case scenario for the person that might be on the fence and looking for kind of the contrasting opinions. The best case scenario, yeah, which is one I think isn't, isn't, you know, in my biased opinion, isn't far from reality is, you know, legalized cannabis is, you know, kind of minimum to me, a $50 billion industry in the U S probably larger. I think it, it, it is a, you know, that type of growth, that type of growth with scale is really unusual. There aren't many examples uh, outside of some specific technology growth where that growth is it's just coming. You know, and I, I try to tell people this, like Massachusetts as an example. Massachusetts was maybe you know a little bit over a hundred million dollar medical marijuana market. Massachusetts, within two years, is probably a billion and a half to two billion dollar end market for legalized cannabis. You know, Washington, using going back to, to that state, is a billion and a half dollar market today, and so that growth is coming. And capturing that growth, and it's one of the reasons I think you've seen a feeding frenzy to a degree in the capital markets going back. That's it, finally settled out, but that growth is happening, and I think that ability to capture that capture that growth is 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 quite prevalent. And so they're just you know, if you look around the market today, outside of making some specific bets on one technology versus another and or the preponderance of, of, you know, this, or even in healthcare, I guess, has some of these really aggressive growth characteristics attached to it well, as well in certain niches, that adoption penetration curve 
it's very predictable in this industry. Maybe not with precision, but magnitude. And that's what makes cannabis so exciting is it's coming. And then you mix that with just the form factor elements, the complexity of cannabis compared to some of the other, you know, the tobacco alcohol comparisons, the therapeutic benefits. Uh, there's just so many different directions it can go. You know, it, it provides a lot of opportunities. Frankly, one of the bigger challenges of the management team is, is there's so much blank canvas here and blank space to work with. It's prioritizing which opportunities you really want to put your muscles behind. Right. The, right. And so, so the positives are, I think, are, are, are almost self-explanatory. And it just comes back to execution. The negatives, I, I, I think the you know, the black swan event here is yeah, some really, really antiquated federal legalization structure. And I think unlikely because I think the states will just stick with their state regulatory systems and people will still just be out of compliance with federal law uh, mm-hmm. if the feds get too too aggressive with that. But we we hear talks of certain like Pennsylvania has a if you if you ever shop for liquor in Pennsylvania, you gotta go to a liquor a liquor store. <laughs> like mm-hmm. a Pennsylvania state run liquor store, excuse me, like Ontario's yep. like that as well. We've heard some rumors of certain states. In fact, Pennsylvania just had uh, one little political faction, we don't think it has any traction, that proposed a state run uh, retail environment. Uh, that type of thing can can be catas- you know, can be really impactful to at least to certain you know, the certain players that are involved in that state or that, that location. So to me, the, you know, kind of the, the larger exogenous events here are regulatory driven and unpredictable. But as I said, I mean, the, they're, they're pretty low probability at this point for me. Got it. Well, you know, I've always said that watching this industry and the, you know, the convergence between people that are smart in business or think that they're smart in business and people that were, you know, growing marijuana and shouldn't have been growing that 10 years ago. It's just a fascinating race to watch the, and not always a race, right? I mean, some, sometimes it's a, it's a, a blending of two talents, but um, I think that you guys are obviously in phenomenal position as, as things move forward and, and I wish you the best of luck. Yeah, no, that is appreciated. And I actually, you, you articulated something that is core to us. In, in Silicon Valley, they talk about growth hacking. I will still tell you the most successful entrepreneurs in the space tend to be more illicit market than suits like me. Uh, mm. And that, that hybridization of, you know, it's not the illicit market that can't structure a contract. Uh, it's the really, really smart illicit market folks. But, but that, that hustle, that growth hacking, that understanding of supply chain mm-hmm. is just such a mm-hmm. critical factor for understanding mm-hmm. immature markets. Uh, it's fascinating to see. Mm-hmm. So anyways, I, that last little that last little bit uh, kind of struck a chord because it's something we internally talk about a lot, which is you know have respect for where this industry came from and where it comes mm-hmm. from. Sure, it's not like you can just just throw a Monsanto scientist on cannabis right. and tomorrow you're gonna you're gonna have you know the highest yielding crop and satisfy you know eighty percent of the market. Like it, it you gotta have respect for where it came from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for your time, Josh, and maybe I'll have you on again some other time. I really appreciate you doing it. Yep, certainly. Take care.